Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We have a very special guest for you today to explore the role of the Royal Navy in the modern world. Now, we always like to bring you the best position guests to talk about their particular subject. And in this instance, there is nobody finer to talk about the changing role of the Royal Navy and the innumerable challenges it faces in the modern world than the head of the Navy itself. So today we have for you Admiral Sir Tony Radakin, the first Sea Lord, who invited me to come to his offices at HMS Excellent on Whale Island in Portsmouth. Now, regardless of my guest, HMS Excellent and Whale Island itself is really a very interesting place. It's been a naval shore-based training establishment for over a century and was a gunnery school initially in 1829 based on the third-rate warship of the same name that was moored alongside the creek, acting as a gunnery range. The gunnery school was moved ashore in the 1880s, by which time the island itself was growing. This is because all of the spoil excavated from the naval base as it expanded was deposited on the island. Now it is no longer a gunnery school, but it is the home of the Navy Command Headquarters. At the very top of that tree is the First Sea Lord, who is the Royal Navy's professional head and chairman of the Navy Board and Chief of Naval Staff. He is responsible to the Secretary of State for the fighting effectiveness, efficiency and morale of the Naval Service, and supports the Secretary of State for Defence in the management and direction of the armed forces. Admiral Radican has been in position since June 2019. He first joined the Navy in 1990 and 13 years later became commanding officer of the frigate HMS Norfolk. He was commanding officer of the US-UK Iraqi Naval Transition Team in 2006 and commanding officer of the US-UK Combined Task Force Iraqi Maritime in 2010. He was promoted to Commodore in 2011, became commander of the naval base in Portsmouth in 2011 as well. He was appointed Director of Force Development at the Ministry of Defence in November 2012 
promoted to Rear Admiral in December 2014 and became Commander United Kingdom Maritime Forces and Rear Admiral Surface Ships that same year. He was promoted to the rank of Vice Admiral on the 27th of March 2018 on his appointment as Second Sea Lord and Deputy Chief of the Naval Staff and the following year he took up his current position. The role of First Sea Lord has changed over time but it has a long history indeed. Originally the title was the Senior Naval Lord to the Board of Admiralty. When the post was created first in 1689 it was held by Admiral Arthur Herbert a really remarkable man and one well worth investigating if you have a little time. Herbert was strategically astute and far-sighted. He was courageous and he was certainly popular with his men. He was also responsible for significant and long-lasting changes in the way that the Navy was run. He was, however, utterly loathed by his enemies and can claim to have some of the most appalling reviews ever written of a human, let alone of a naval officer. Samuel Pepys said, of all the worst men living, Herbert is the only man that I do not know to have one virtue to compound for all of his vices. And the historian John Ehrman described him as almost a professional bad man. It's the first and only time I have ever come across the word bad man as a single word and a noun. Anyway, Admiral Radikin not only walks in the footsteps of Herbert, but also a long, long list of the most remarkable people to wear the naval uniform, including Sir George Rook and Sir Charles Wager from the 17th century, Lord Anson and Earl Howe from the 18th, Sir George Coburn and Sir Sidney Dacres from the 19th century, Admiral Earl Beatty and Admiral Sir John Cunningham for the 20th century, and Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope and Admiral Sir George Zambellis from the 21st. We met in his office on Whale Island, overlooking Portsmouth Naval Base, with huge floor-to-ceiling windows where you could sit all day and watch the comings and goings of the maritime world, from ferries to tiny fishing craft and, of course, brand new aircraft carriers. For those of you who want to see what this looks like, please bear in mind that this episode was filmed, so all you have to do is pop over to the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page where you can meet the Admiral in person. And so here... It's Admiral Radikin. First of all, I do love your office. Did you choose it to make it as like being on a ship as possible without actually being on one? So uh, I suppose we're lucky. So um, this is a fantastic place to base a Navy headquarters. So um, we're at the top of the harbour. We're on Whale Island. The island was created by the excavation of Portsmouth Harbour. Uh, and so it seems a suitable place to have a Navy headquarters and it's fantastic to have large windows and it's great for me to be able to look out and see our ships. Uh, I think it's less good for our ship CEOs to know that <laughs> they're, they're, they're under the gaze of the, of the headquarters, but no, it's, uh, we're, we're lucky. Yeah. Do you miss being on board a ship? I do, I, I, because um, I think for most of us, your first 10 years are intimately on board ship. You then tend to have a mixture the next 10 years and then you tend to be a bit further away from the bridge in, your, in, in, in the following 10 years, if that's an easy way of describing it. And there's a comfort. It's, it's, in a way, it's reassuring that when you go back to a ship, and whether it's the ladders or it's the food or it's the smell, uh, personally, I don't like going to ships and not, uh, not going up to the bridge. Yeah. Um, and I still can't understand 
the engineering community that can just descend into the engine rooms and almost not know where the ship is and not look outside. Um, so I think it's, it, it does become part of your DNA. Um, and that's why we're all, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to the commanding, our, our new commanding officers uh, this afternoon. And it's, uh, it's a genuine sort of congratulations um, because they've got the best jobs going. And it's, a con it's also a, uh, and I'm envious of you. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I am. And, and, and some of the opportunities we've got with the Navy at the moment, uh, I think for most of us, we'd love to turn back the clock and, uh, and do it all again. Yeah, I love that you said about the smell of the ships. In the 18th century, they would have smelled of Stockholm tar. That would have primarily been the smell. What do, they, what do they smell like? What does a modern warship smell like? I think it's interesting. Is it food? No, Oil. no, it's definitely not. So it's, you get the, you're, inevitably you get the, you know, you get the wafts of the ship as you go around the ship. There's, there's still, um, if the bridge is always a good place to just sort of reassure yourself and look out and sort of get that comfort. The other place to kind of get a feel for a, a ship is to go to the galley uh, and you chat to the chefs and they've got the, and you know, what's the latest buzz and so on. I think that's probably never changed. I think the focus on, um, is the food good? And the food is, uh, I think, is, is extraordinarily good, I'm pleased to say. Uh, some things have changed. Um, and then the other smells are, are a mixture of, you know, if I feel it now, if you go to a carrier or you're, you're arriving uh, frequently for me, if you're arriving by helicopter, then there is a sort of avcat uh, aviation smells. You then go into the ship, and if I'm honest, it's the, yeah, normally it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smell of cleanliness. It's, um, it's the fact that um, the, the decks are varnished, um, the place is clean, and then you go into engine rooms, and engine rooms smell the same way as, in my mind, the same way as when I was a midshipman, and I was doing my task book, and right, learn about how the ship actually works. Yeah, so, so many different influences, all poised yeah. and ready to go. Um, I love this map, let's talk about this briefly, and I'd also, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, the challenges of, of exercising sea power in the modern world. What, what exactly is this? So this is, um, I love this, uh, this is a brilliant graphic, and to me, this describes the world that we're actually in, which is a world dominated by the sea, and the different colours represent the different trades that go around the world on the sea. Um, so whether that's your, uh, your energy, whether it's the mineral ore, whether it's the container vessels. And there's a, the, piece, the piece I love about it is that you could almost, uh, you, could, you could subtract the land and and you would see and you would you would see the definition of the world that we live in, mm -hmm. and so it feels to me, um, and and that's a snapshot of all of those ships flowing around the world over a twelve month period, and that that's what it looks like, and and that, hence to me, that is the world that we're in. It's a maritime dominated world. It's a world that goes back to. Um, you know, to some extent, the early 1600s and Grotius and the notion of the high seas and what that has meant for us in terms of our prosperity, our security, our stability. Um, and that still dominates. And I think the other piece for me is um, it's the, 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 the Marshall book on the seven, the seven maps, the seven charts that have influenced the world. So Africa and it's difficulty because its rivers are less navigable, 
compared to a the, 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 a Europe that has this abundance of navigable rivers that then means that that trade from sea can actually get into the hinterland and actually um, prosperity then grows. Yeah, I love that idea of uh, you know maritime power as it's conceived, not just being about the sea. You have to think think of, of the the inlets going deep into the into the continents as well. Um, but with this scale of maritime commerce affecting the world, how do you how do you exercise sea power? You know, faced with this kind of challenge. So I think I think you exercise it at, uh, at lots of different levels, and you exercise it definitely within the frame of your government and its policies. And if you look at that, you actually exercise it in an international sense. So, and, and by the way, I think these, these big ideas, um, they actually come down to a very practical level. So if I take this week, uh, the G7 is about to start. These are these magnificent democracies that do have shared values, shared interests. And they come together and, um, and many of them were, were in the, uh, this amazing military alliance called NATO, which again has got, uh, represents shared values, shared interests and a commitment to defend each other. You then, if you've got those political frames and you've got those shared interests, um, particularly around security, stability, trade, prosperity, uh, belief in democracy and so on, then I think you then start to, to look at your various instruments of power uh, and that could be economic, it could be diplomatic, it, you know, you could extend it to social, cultural and so on, political. And if you look at the military one, well, you want to use your power with your land forces, with your air forces, your ability to work alongside intelligence agents and so on. And then for, the, for, for us as a Navy, I think we're at a, um, a really sharp clarity about what we offer a government and fulfilling a government policy. So if that's encapsulated, and there's a debate in the phrase Global Britain, then we start to provide a global navy for Global Britain. And then what does that need to do? Well, it needs to project our values. It needs to firstly look after the homeland. Um, and part of our looking after the homeland is a physical uh, REEZ, our exclusive economic zone, our territorial waters but it also extends to the fundamentals of UK defence. So that's a nuclear deterrent. So if I want to operate in the North Atlantic, I need to keep that nuclear deterrent um, safe and with a freedom of manoeuvre. In order to do that, I have to, I have to know where there might be um, some actors that are trying to find uh, our nuclear submarines. So I'm instantly in a competition there. So that then starts to project what I'm doing here. We've then got this uh, incredible responsibility uh, to look after our overseas territories. Well, suddenly I now need to have some forces in the Caribbean. I need to be, um, support the Falklands. I need to also have an eye these days to the Pitcairn Islands in the middle of the Pacific and the, one of the world's largest uh, maritime protected areas. So how do I do that? I then, I want to meld in with my NATO allies and we want to demonstrate to Russia that um, we're, we've got freedom of manoeuvre in, in, in the North Atlantic. We might want to demonstrate that we can operate uh, around the world, so we'll operate further north. And then we want to demonstrate that we are a global navy as part of global Britain. We've got shared interests with our friends and allies in the Indo-Pacific. We've got important interests in the Gulf. 
So now I've started to operate in that area. And then in the Mediterranean, again, the, the Mediterranean is, is, is through a security lens, increasingly becoming an operational theater, um, particularly the, the, the eastern end of the Mediterranean. We've then got the Black Sea, we've got Ukraine, we've got those issues there. We want to demonstrate our closeness to Ukraine. Um, and, and, and can we help the Ukraine government grow in its, ca its capacity? We've got amazing uh, UK interest in the Gulf of Guinea, enormous investment going into Senegal. So at the government level, can we align in that sense? So we've got HMS Trent, who's operating in the Mediterranean, but will also be operating in the Gulf of Guinea. We then operate with, the, with, the, with navies in the Gulf of Guinea, and the operate might be as light as, um, we've got this amazing hydrographic office, um, one of the, if not the best, uh, hydrographers uh, in the world. Therefore, can we support in that sense? Can we support in terms of our information flows in the maritime space? The hydro hydrographic office, they're, they're, they're keeping, oh, keeping us going with um, improving the safety of the sea and improving charts and our understanding of the oceans. So it's, uh, it's got all of those fundamentals and then it's got some, some pieces that are really important for me. If we're operating submarines and we want to be able to operate submarines around the globe, then we need to know the seabed in uh, an incredibly detailed way um, and that but that then aligns with there are other actors um, yeah, energy companies um, undersea cable companies uh, environmentalists that want to understand the seabed as well so, so 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 you can you can align your interests there but it also extends in a modern sense is that this is all data this just happens to be data about the sea the seabed the ocean the oceanographics of it so can we go in partnership, allied again with our policy, of what's the information that we hold? What's the information of their coastal radars? What's the information of their local uh, hydrographic institutes? What, um, what's their view about the rule of law? What's their view about how they protect their exclusive economic zones? Um, can we align in that way? Do, they, do we have shared interests again? Can I help them to grow capacity and, and that does that then help me? And, and that's what I think is constantly going on. And then there are challenges where some people might have a different view. And actually, we need to show that we, we're, we're not going to be cowed by that, um, that freedom of navigation is key and we're going to maintain it. And, to, and so, again, that, that, that's going on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The whole time. Yeah. This idea of um, it all being about information, I think, is fascinating. And information obviously leads on to questions about technology. What, what's your view on how... Uh, on, on the Navy's future in terms of new and modern technology? So I think we have an amazing story to tell and back to your, and I think we've always been at the, at the leading edge and, and we continue to do so. Um, and it extends across the whole of the Navy. So at the, at the top end are these phenomenal technological instruments called nuclear submarines that have our nuclear deterrent. Um, and it's just a notion that um, it's hard enough having a nuclear reactor uh, on land. You put it into a black tube, you put it in with 100, 150 people alongside it, you, you, you put some armaments in, whether that's missiles or torpedoes, and then you operate it under the oceans, and then you want to have the freedom to operate it where you choose. That's and, and by the way, that, that, uh, you've got to look after your people to keep them incredibly safe. But if I take the nuclear deterrent, I've got to guarantee to the Prime Minister the notice that he wants that we're able to respond should he require it. And at the same time, I never want that nuclear submarine to be found. It's invulnerable. It's never to be detected. Now, that, the technology that goes into enabling that, the skills of the people, is phenomenal. If I then go to another phenomenal piece, uh, aircraft carriers, we have just built, and, and the, uh, yeah, the UK should be immensely proud, we have just built the world's best modern aircraft carriers. They, they cost just over three billion pounds. Um, that's that's, that is a lot of money, but when you compare it to the cost of aircraft carriers across the, the globe, that looks like a, um, a fantastic achievement. If you then look at the ship's company, it's got a ship's company of 800. That's 800 for a 65,000 ton ship. If I look uh, across to America, their modern aircraft carriers are 100,000 tons with a ship's company of 2,700. So the design that we've got with HMS Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales, which, which uses an Amazon storage system for all the armaments, and that saves 250 people. And then there are other things in that ship's design um, that make it this, what we call a fifth generation aircraft carrier. You then put the world's best jets on board, F-35. And these are, these are phenomenal aircraft. And they have a bit, an ability to, again, to information. They can suck up uh, data. They can share that data in the, in, the, in the formations that they fly in, and they can project that data back to uh, their sea bases, their land bases, and so on. That, this is the top-end technology, and then it carries on through. We are investing in, uh, in drones so that we replace our mine hunting ships, because that is a more effective and safe and better way of finding mines. We are investing in our Royal Marines so that we have a future commando force, so that these amazing people who have this physical courage and they have the ingenuity of commandos are blended with technology so that they can work more closely with, with special forces, with intelligence agencies. And a traditional company attack 
of, I don't know, 150 people trying to get to point A, and they're, you know, 20 years ago, let's, 20 years ago, they would be operating under quite a narrow front. It might be, it might be five kilometers wide, it might be three kilometers deep. When you then take the same 150 people or reduce it down to 120, 10 teams of 12, with drone technology and the ability to maybe operate under a, a narrow breadth, which is 100 kilometers, and to speed up the battle space and the decision making, and they've got fires as well as the what we call I-Star, their, their reconnaissance and surveillance, and a company commander has got all of that projected onto a screen in front of him, and then each of his section commanders have, have, has got the same picture, then, that, then that, that's, the, that's what's happening. Uh, and I'm, a, I'm an advocate of, in a technological revolution, we have to embrace that because our competitors might embrace it and are embracing it. And if we carry on as we are, we risk falling behind. And the, my worry is that sometimes armed forces as relatively conservative institutions, we revere what we know and hold dear and we might be slow to change and to me there is more risk with carrying on as we are than actually the risks involved with adopting new technology and then getting after it and actually getting after it in such a way that we have an advantage over our competitors and so that's that's what we're trying to do yeah the idea of a technical revolution is really important isn't it and the point is that it, it, it hasn't happened it is happening and it will continue to happen and you've got to see yourself as part of that big flow absolutely and it's across all spheres so i think we and we can we can leverage off that technological revolution because of the quality of our people the men and women down to the most junior sailor and the most junior marine is an, an enormous advantage that we has, have as a Navy. And that, you know, again, in a historical sense, I would say that's been one of the endearing features uh, of, of the Royal Navy. Our success is grounded on the quality of our men and women. You then, that then enables you to keep shifting and changing in order to retain your position. And your position is about delivering for the government, giving choices for the government, and you can offer them more choices if you've got an advantage over your competitors. Mm. It's interesting talking about you know, the present and the future. Well, let's just think about the opposite of that. How important is the past to the Navy in terms of precedent, example, prestige, whatever it might be? So I think it's important in that it gives us this incredible tradition. It gives us, it does give us a status. Um, and I don't mean this in, in, a, in a jingoistic sense. I mean it in a, when, yeah, it's a great privilege uh, being First Sea Lord. And when you travel the world and you see that our Navy has quite often been a reference Navy for other navies and amazing stories like uh, Admiral Cochrane uh, and, and our Chilean friends. Um, that's, that's what we've got to that. And that's more than a door opener. That is a respect. Uh, it goes back to the shared values, shared interests. It allows you to, to work together more closely. And I think it does allow you to be able to look out on the world and say, right, how, how did our predecessors uh, deal with the same challenges? What were they doing in order to uh, succeed? So I think that's a, it's an enormous um, 
it's enormous backdrop that lifts you and gives you this perspective and elevation. I think there's a, there's a potential downside. Mm -hmm. The downside is that you're slightly intimidated by, by this um, incredibly um, majestic uh, background or that you revere the past and you worry that actually you're going to take some risks and that the organization, when, when I've been having these conversations about why we might have to shift, it's interesting to me because some people's views is, is, is that the organization is quite precious and if you bend it a bit too much, it's going to break. I, I see it the, the opposite. This is an incredible organization that's been around for at least 500 years. It's got resilience, it's got um, incredible uh, prestige, it's got incredible clarity about what it does as a Navy and the importance of leadership, of camaraderie, of ethos, of delivering for our government, of working with our friends and allies. And they're, 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 they're ingrained in our DNA. Um, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's malleable. You can adjust it to the here and now. It's not something that is brittle. And that if you just, if you're just aware of it too much, you're going to let everybody down and you're taking these enormous risks. No one's betting the organization and so on. It's just a continuum. And, and the continuum should always be adjusting and changing in order to serve our government uh, and, and, and our people. Yeah. And in terms of education, I suppose you've got to be very careful what lessons you decide to pull out of history to inspire your young officers or your young non-commissioned officers, don't you? Yes, and I, well, again, I um, definitely, so we've got this richness uh, of, of, of lessons uh, that we can learn, and some of them are positive lessons, some of them are negative lessons. So yes, it's success and failure, failure equally so, balanced. Exactly, yeah. so we've got, it, we've got to draw, draw or it's, it's helpful if you've got, lot, if you've got more successes than failures. Um, <laughs> So you could kind of draw on that, uh, but I also, I think you've got to be careful of, of romanticizing or super romanticizing. So I think, you know, we all in the Royal Navy revere Admiral Lord Nelson, but there's a, the, 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 to me, there's a danger that the more you learn about it, and also you kind of, the more you risk kind of thing, I, I, you can never be him, and, and therefore you're intimidated, and you're kind of, you kind of go in on yourself. Um, a personal hero for me is Shackleton. The notion, and it's Shackleton's leadership, that Shackleton stranded in the South Atlantic and he gets in an open boat and his ship's company know that he's going to go and get help and they actually believe he's going to go and get help. Yet the journey that he had to make in an open boat in the South Atlantic to get to South Georgia an unsurveyed island to then make his way across South Georgia. Climb over a mountain. Climb over a mountain, <laughs> get lost in a glacier, um, come back up, go to another one, find a whaling station, mm. get the help. And then and then he, he goes back and he rescues his ship's company and they all, they all expected him to come back and rescue them. Yeah. I mean, that, as an act of leadership, I, again, I, 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 I find that intimidating, but it's to try and say, right, don't take the intimidation part take the aspirational part of what can you do with the human condition when everybody is aligned and you, and you have a clear sense of purpose, you have integrity, you have honesty, you have moral courage, you have physical courage, well, you can do great things. Yeah, I mean, he's faced with the ultimate problem. And I like the idea of his crew sitting around going, well, if there's one person <laughs> amongst us who can actually do it, it's him. You know, off you, off yeah. you go. Uh, it's a, a wonderful story. Um, let's just uh, f finish by referring back to this map again. And here's little old UK here. How, how do you 
cope with being a relatively small navy faced with immense powers in East, in China and America. So, so, so we have the good fortune of being able to then blend our navy with these other navies so that you can multiply your effect around the world. So, and that, that happens everywhere. So in the North Atlantic, we're operating with our NATO navies. In the Caribbean, where we're doing counter-narcotics as well as looking after our overseas territories, with the, 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 the nations in the Caribbean, but also um, the United States Navy, the United States Coast Guard, Canada, France, uh, the Netherlands. Um, if I look down to the Falklands, that's more of a, uh, of, of a singular piece, but we're doing that alongside the British Army and the Royal Air Force. If I then carry on around the world, if you go into the Gulf, We've been there for a long time. It's at one level, it's a relatively modest footprint. It's a frigate, it's a support ship, it's four mine hunters. At another level, well, there's no other international navy uh, from outside the region that has got a bigger footprint other than the United States. Um, I then, we then leverage off these amazing touch points. You've got Cyprus at the eastern end of the Med. We've got Diego Garcia, the British Indian Ocean Territory in the middle of the Indian Ocean. We've got Singapore, we've got Brunei, and then we've got friends, we've got you know, numerous friends in the Gulf. We've got uh, India as a growing navy. We've got Japan, Australia, South Korea. These are all navies that you then link with in order to have a, a more significant effect and to blend with their values and interests. And if you've got shared values and interests, well, actually you can come together and you're gonna be successful. Well, it's a, a wonderful challenger. Best of luck. No, it's brilliant. It's great. It's a, it's a privilege uh, to, to, to have that responsibility and that challenge. And it's a delight uh, to be able to pull it off uh, and to do it for our government and our nation, but to do it aligned with all these other countries. Thank you all so much for listening. If you are enjoying these podcasts, I hope you are, please, please tell your friends. Please leave us a review on iTunes, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and tell us how much you are enjoying it and in particular what you found particularly good and we will like and share your post. Best of all, however, do please join the Society for Nautical Research. It really doesn't cost very much, but it supports this podcast. It helps the Society with its mission to publish the world's most important maritime history in the quarterly Mariner's Mirror Journal. And it helps preserve our maritime past. But best of all, I reckon, is that you can apply for a ticket to come to our annual dinner on HMS Victory. Yes, and that is something you will never, ever forget you can join us at snr.org.uk.